Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This place is special. Get asked all the time, where's your favorite place to take college game day? And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yeah. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's covered. <laughs> It's radio. They don't care. These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns Touchdown, Oregon! Been making deposits. Time to cash the check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Good evening and welcome back to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Deck. I am Doug Scott. I'm joined, of course, by Andrew, QB11. And on this episode, we are back with our special recurring guest, Hithliday from Addicted to Quack. And it never rains on this podcast. So we'll be talking with Hithliday in a few minutes here about the Pac-12 season, the Oregon season, kind of reviewing what we predicted back in the summer, what what came true, what, we, what didn't come true, and just kind of talking about... All of those teams moving forward, especially the ones moving into the Big Ten along with Oregon. But before we get there, I just want to spend a few minutes, QB, uh, talking about the transfer portal and where Oregon is at. I know in our last episode we talked about the guys that have left the team as well as the commitment of quarterback Dylan Gabriel from Oklahoma. I think we've had one additional departure since then with running back Dante Dowdell uh, moving along, probably going back closer to home. Don't know exactly where yet. He's a true freshman this year for Oregon, played a very limited role in the Oregon, uh, deep Oregon running back room. And then today, the Ducks have landed three new commitments. I'll just throw them out there, and then QB, if you want to just touch on them briefly, and then we'll get to Day. So obviously, uh, running back Jay Harris, who's a Division II transfer, is coming in essentially as the replacement for Dante Dowdell. He was an All-American in Division II last season at the running back position. Um, at the Ducks late here, just about an hour or so ago, picked up uh, quarterback Dante Moore transferring from UCLA. So obviously that's a name that all Duck fans are probably very familiar with his backstory and, and his previous commitment to Oregon. So he's coming back to Oregon now. Well, or he's coming to Oregon now, I should say. And then finally, um, offensive lineman 
Matthew Bedford out of Indiana. He's a four-year starter at Indiana, has played basically every position on the offensive line except for center, and he'll be transferring over to Oregon to play his final year of football, probably at guard where he's played the last couple of years. So, Andrew, take it away. Yeah, uh, I'll start with Jay Harris and say I know absolutely nothing about him, and I have no way to learn anything about him because finding film on Division Two teams from Northwestern Missouri uh, has proven to be very, very difficult. So we'll all just have to kind of wait and see. He was extremely productive, obviously, at that level, and I don't think he'd be getting a shot at this level if he wasn't. So um, big kid, fit, looks really good physically. Uh, it'll be a surprise for all of us when we get to see him in the spring. Uh, in regards to Matthew Bedford, this is one that we had heard about Doug, back at the beginning of December as someone that, that Oregon really liked. Um, and it makes sense to me. He's got started at left tackle one year, right tackle another. Uh, and then he was a two-year starter at guard for for Indiana, obviously a COVID year. So he's got one more year left of eligibility. Uh, to me, he fills an immediate need at right guard. Um, I think he's an immediate upgrade over what we had there this year. So um, excited about him overall. At good length to the room, good athlete. He's been he's still been relatively inconsistent at times, but I think that all the pieces are there that if he can have a good offseason and put some things together, um, he could end up being a pretty pretty plus player for us. So excited about Matthew Bedford. Uh, I think he, he penciled into the starting lineup. And then um, a quarterback, Dante Moore. I'm a huge fan of Dante. Uh, going back to last year, I think I rambled on about him for about 15 minutes when he initially committed to Oregon. was pretty upset when he, uh, when he flipped. Uh, but thankfully, Nostradamus, a.k.a. Hithliday, um predicted that he would transfer to us after the season, and he did. And I'm really excited because I've been able to watch a little bit of his UCLA tape. Obviously, he had some interception problems, some turnover issues at points this year, um, but he was playing in a pretty tough situation behind one of the worst offensive lines in the conference. And all that all that projectable talent that existed last year when he committed is still there. Uh, and, and he's going to be coming into a really good situation where he can redshirt behind Dylan Gabriel, learn the system, become comfortable. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to the future. I think Oregon has secured their quarterback room for the next three years at minimum uh, with those two commitments. I think that the future is definitely bright there. Yeah, that's a big one. And obviously, Oregon is not done in the portal. I, th- I know we they've brought in several other players throughout the course of the weekend. And since the portal opened, uh, I think there's probably some more portal commitments coming in the next couple of days. Obviously, uh, early signing day for high school commits is also on Wednesday. So the, Oregon will look to land all of their current commits and maybe a couple more as well. We'll be back to cover that. Of course, on signing day, we'll be back with Justin, QB, and myself. We'll talk about signing day. We'll talk about all the commitments. We'll talk about all the commits. We'll talk about all the portal guys. So look forward to that in our next episode. But for now, let's let's get back over and talk with our, our good friend Hithliday, always one of our most popular episodes whenever you're on. So first of all, Hithliday, welcome. Tell everyone where they can find your work. Uh, thanks, Doug. I, I am the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Uh, I also uh, am the host of It Never Rains on this podcast, uh, which you can find on any podcast catcher. Um, we cover uh, every Oregon sport that there is. Uh, we, we are committed to if you put on a green yellow uniform, uh, we will cover you. So uh, we do the whole uh, full spectrum. Um, basketball's in full swing right now. So we got the, the basketball writers are pretty excited to be, um, well, they're excited to be employed. I'm not sure how excited they are about the season, but they're covering it assiduously. Um, and of course, uh, you know, this has been a, a pretty fun time. 
to to cover all the recruiting and the transfer news and so forth. And and also for those of us who uh, keep receipts uh, about how the football season went, um, uh, you know, I I publish you know previews because I do all the charting for every team in the Pac-12. Um, although that's become a kind of a fraught project you know a lot of that that film and and uh and player database and so forth is uh becoming less useful now and i, I have to now come up with a the corollary project for the big 10 um but uh you know we talked back in july you know with our predictions for how the season would go for how a lot of these pac-12 teams and uh i feel like in the fifth year of doing that you know previewing every one of the pac-12 teams teams. Man, I I wrote my most accurate set of of predictions yet, you know, just in time for the conference to (laughs) to collapse. Um, You know, you know, thanks for calling me Notre Dame, I I guess, uh, QB11. I I thought maybe your tongue was in cheek a little bit about about that. But I did. I mean, I I nailed it. I, I nailed exactly how UCLA's season would go, you know, from Dante Moore starting to, uh, to, to getting benched for Colin Schley. Like, I mean, literally I called it that Colin Schley would be the quarterback who would finish their season for them. Um, and I mean, I wrote that article for fun. Like Oregon didn't even play UCLA. <laughs> um, it, it was, a, it was a lot of fun, uh, to, to cover this conference. Uh, and I, I guess I'm also looking forward to covering the big 10 as well. I wasn't being tongue in cheek at all, by the way, cause I actually had gone back and reread some of your, your previews. Um, as the season had worn on and they, they always seem to age like a fine wine, well, especially now, yeah. but unfortunately all that data and all that, uh, all that understanding you've accumulated of seven of these teams is no longer going to be particularly useful. Well, unless Oregon, I mean, Oregon will probably wind up scheduling some of them for, uh, you know, out of conference games and it's useful context for sort of understanding, you know, like. Hey, why did USC, you know, uh, uh, struggle against Arizona? Well, you need to understand Arizona. Well, I, I understood Arizona fairly well. Uh, at least I thought I did anyway. Like, what a weird team that, you know, they barely beat Stanford and it required Stanford, who had pr- maybe the best kicker in the conference, to miss two field goals. Like, uh, boy, there, you know, there's a lot of weirdness in the Pac-12, although I guess that's to be expected with this conference. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think, unfortunately, you might have to wait a while to use some of that knowledge because Oregon's schedule is full for like the next six years. So there won't yeah. be any uh, any of the Big 12 schools or Washington State I, on it anytime soon. I acquired all of Texas Tech's film a, a, in 2023 as well to be prepared for the home and oh, home no. and then that went away. I, <laughs> I, I, I offered but you can it hold to on to it for- until 2033 when they play. That's I, I suppose I will. <laughs> you win, when all Tyler those, uh, might still be playing. Yeah, right. And and all the Texas Tech players are, you know, deep into their careers as accountants and insurance salespeople. Yeah. Uh I, I offered all the film to our, our friends at Coog Center and, and Pod versus everybody in case they wanted to go over it to prepare for their game for, for whoever my counterpart is who does all the film study at, at Wazoo. I'm I'm sure they're deeply interested. Oh, there's nobody that does this at other schools. Well, not for does the Pac-12. <laughs> um, there was well, Chris Osgood for UCLA. I was going to say Osgood made, does a great job. Yeah, although like he sent out a cryptic tweet about how maybe like Chip Kelly has finally gotten to him and he needs to take a break. I I, I tried. I'm I've been putting together. I've been trying to put together like an NIL package to get him to defect and and come over to write for ATQ. Now that Dante Moore's come to Oregon, like we, I, I need to get people to to subscribe to ATQ Premium. 
so I can I can get some cash to get Osgood over. But yeah, you're right. Like there's nobody who does this for the Pac-12. Maybe that was the reason why the Pac-12 folded. On the other hand, the Big Ten has a lot of folks who do film study. I'm I'm sort of looking forward to rubbing shoulders with you know Eleven Warriors and M. Go and some of the other people. Yeah, exactly. Is Eleven um, Warriors are they the the Nebraska one? No, that's that's a high state. There's a there's a Nebraska guy who does a really good job. I'm trying to remember what his name is. But I remember him from when we played them back in like 2015, 2016. Um, yeah, I did. I did some. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of good film exchange. I mean, those guys take it seriously. Like, I, I don't know what to, what else to to call it. But like, you know, whenever we do. You know, whenever we do any sort of like at a conference sort of exchanges, you know, Q and A's, you know, whatever, it's like, uh, man, it's kind of pulling teeth for a lot of different conferences. And it's like, you know, the cup runneth over when we're talking to big, big 10 folks like, you know, corn country. It's, it's corn and football, man. If that women's volleyball, that's the other thing. Oregon's been on a run in women's volleyball, which we've been, you know, we've been lucky enough to cover for Addicted to Quack. And, uh, and yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, we talked to Minnesota, we talked to Ohio State, we, we talked to, you know, all the folks, you, uh, we talked to Wisconsin, like, uh, in the past, uh, we talked to Nebraska, like, they love women's volleyball. Whenever I'm putting together the, vi- like, the, when I have to do the video editing to get stuff into my library, like, like when I was doing the uh, the the Wisconsin versus um, uh, Nebraska video editing to get that tape ready to put into my library, like the the interview that they were doing in between the quarters was not like Matt Rule or Luke Fickle, right? Like a you know former NFL coach, you know former coach who coached in the 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 college football playoff. Nope. It was the women's volleyball coach who was gassing up the, the volleyball game that night. You know, they like, man, they love women's volleyball in the big 10. Uh, and, and, and you should too, cause it's rad. Like, uh, uh, Nebraska uh, filling their stadium for the, I think it was the Wisconsin game earlier this yeah, year. Yeah. That was yeah. awesome. They put it in the football stadium. They put it in Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. Uh, it was a hell of a match too. It was, it was really good. And, um, and yeah, so Oregon fell to Wisconsin in the uh, in the regionals. That's that's got to be Matt Olner's goal uh, for next season is to get Oregon to host a, uh, a regional so they don't have to play somebody else's place. Um, uh, I think you know Oregon's on the cusp of it. Like their their volleyball team's really up in the up and up. Um, uh, but this is the football podcast. Maybe we should uh, yeah. transition over. Let's transition to football. We got a lot to talk about here. So if we were going to cover a second sport, though, I do want to make it clear. I think that volleyball actually might be one. I really, I really enjoy volleyball. I went, when I was in Eugene, I went to so many games. Um, what, yeah, yeah. What, volleyball, ever since they changed the rules, they had that big change of rules. I don't know, it's probably been a decade ago now. Like that sport has just become like such a joy to watch. It's really like, it's really an un, un, uh, unmined gem out there. I think a lot of people don't know about, but I think it's growing fast. Its popularity as a spectator sport is growing fast because it's just, it's fast paced. The games move quickly. It's a lot of action. It's really fun to watch. I'm also looking forward to Oregon going to the Big Ten to play. Uh, you know, the Diamond Ducks are really going to be able to run through, I think, the Big Ten pretty easily. Like the the, the Oregon softball, I think, is really going to, uh, just going to, Prounce a lot of those Big Ten teams. They just don't have the athletes out there to keep up with the Oregon softball team. Doesn't Iowa have a really good program? 
A couple of teams do, but I mean, the Pac-12 in softball is just like loaded Murderers top to bottom. Row. Baseball yeah. too. Um, but it's just like, I mean, you, you have to get down to like the number eight or nine team in the Pac-12 before you have an easy game. Um, and like not... So I mean the Big Ten, it's like you get down to number three and you're like, okay, you're on cruise control. I gotcha. So one more thought about the Big Ten before we get to Oregon football. Uh, you know, that it was announced today that they're gonna have a four hour signing day special on the Big Ten network. So they'll be covering signing day live for four hours starting at oh, I think it's eleven AM Pacific time. Uh, and then they'll have uh interviews with several coaches on there, including Coach Dan Lanning. Uh, and some other Pac-12 coaches or former Pac-12 coaches joining the Big Ten as well. So it's just such a pleasure, a pleasure to like be able to sit here and talk about the fact that I can turn on my conferences um, network and actually watch live coverage of signing day for the first time in, I don't know, ever. It's nice. Yeah, it's going to be weird. It's um, I'm so used to not even turning on the Pac-12 network except for like three times a year when we play on it. Uh, but like every time that signing day would be happening or something big would be happening, they'd always be playing like water polo matches from like five years ago on the Pac-12 network. And so having a conference that prioritizes football and treats football like a big deal is going to be a weird adjustment to get used to like having good coverage. Yeah, they had that so the, uh, schedule announcement show a few, you know, a month or so ago when the Big Ten schedule was announced. They talked for like four hours. They talked about all the team schedule. They talked about all the games. They had analysts from Fox come in and it was like, holy crap, this is what a real network is like. This is, it's going to be a weird adjustment because again, we're going from like the drags, like literally the bottom, the slums of college football in terms of network coverage to arguably the best along with the SEC network. And so um, having like, first of all, having like way better analysts, better studio talent, and then having a league that actually prioritizes the, the the breadwinner in football will be really fun. All right, let's get to the Ducks. Let's review the season. Obviously, Oregon 11-1 and one during the regular season with the only loss there up at Seattle, up in Seattle at UW, and then lost again to UW in the conference title game, playing in the Fiesta Bowl against Liberty. How do we want to approach this? we want to talk about position groups? we want to go game by game? Um, I think position group is probably the best way to go. What do you think? Yeah, that's how we normally do it. Uh, that's fine. Uh, I I have all the player games and grades in front of me. And I don't think we need to spend a lot of time talking about guys who have left the team, (laughs) but let's start with the quarterback position. Uh, You know, not a lot to say. I mean, Bo Nix, uh, delivered as advertised is top three vote getter in the Heisman vote in New York. Um, had, probably the second best uh, season of a quarterback in Oregon history. It was extremely good. Uh, very consistent throughout the year, too. I think the only game that that he charted that was a below-average game was the last one in the Pac-12 title game. And other than that, every game he had was was a- above average to elite. Yeah, I, I they have a hard time finding qualms with the way Bo played, although I do think his two worst games of the season were both against Washington, which is Never an ideal situation for an Oregon quarterback, but um, all things considered, like this was a fantastic season. This is a season that, in my opinion, moves him up to no no worse than number two and three or two or three in the all-time Oregon quarterback rankings. And uh, it's definitely a season to remember. And I, I think that his performance was absolutely deserving of that invite to New York for the Heisman ceremony. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry only on BlueNile.com. 
Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Uh, uh, I mean, yes, it is literally true that the two worst games that he played were both against Washington. The, uh, you know, the although interestingly, um, the Texas Tech game is a close third, um, which is weird because like he, it's not like he was playing a bad game against Texas Tech. He he, he played a fantastic game. It's just uh, the like you know. That was during the part of the season in which there was like a real kind of drops issue that the the receivers were were having, and like I mean, just one or two more completed passes, and like his numbers, you know, probably shoot up. So that's just sort of a bit of anom- an anomaly. The uh, the first Washington game is I, I don't the first Washington game is weird because I think the the sort of it's not about Bo Nix it's about the way that the staff approached the offensive line so we sort of have to like before I talk about Bo Nix we sort of have to talk about the offensive line which if you recall going into the season which was the topic that everybody actually wanted to talk about which is you know uh, maybe sounds strange now like because it was such a sort of steady thing um uh that everybody's maybe forgotten about it but like if you cast your mind back to like august september uh of this year it was all anybody would was talking about all the anonymous coaches would drag oregon for you know it was like oh they're replacing their four stars y'all remember this right oh yeah i'm gonna because i'm gonna take my victory laps on that i was fighting that fight on the timeline all summer long and i got all the receipts to prove it too and i have What's that? Well, there was, was a dumb fight to fight because there was there was no substance behind that entire like. I know, but I fought it anyway, and I was right. Yeah, you were. Uh, How do you? Congratulations, Doug. The there is some substance to the fight. The what's interesting is that there's a real split in their pass blocking uh, effectiveness over time and their run blocking effectiveness over time. Um, and, and like this was, you know. I said this at the midseason break. It continued to be true over the course of the year, um, which is that, like, from the get-go, their uh, their pass-blocking grades were meeting the Oregon standard. Um, like, that, you really didn't see much of a problem at all out of Cornelius or Connerly, you know, defending the edges. You really didn't see, you know, the guys up in the middle getting run over by, you know, some of the big, you know, interior defensive linemen that they faced. And if you recall, Texas Tech, you know, had two 
two of the big guys, right? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, and they faced them early, um, and uh, you know, they they really, you know, never had a problem in, in pass protection, which is not to say perfect, you know, that the perfection's not the standard, but like, uh, you know, I can tell you from my my tally sheet, and I, you know, I grade every single snap that they play outside of garbage time. Like, there's no dips or changes or anything. They're playing at the same level from Portland State through the conference championship game um the in in pass protection however in run blocking it's this sort of steady ramp up and you know what's crazy is the like it's still the case the worst game they played in run blocking was against portland state like <laughs> which I, I know must sound insane because they you know, they scored 81 points. They had like 75 yard touchdown runs. It's because, you know, Bucky Irving was humiliating the, the, the poor, you know, FCS kids. Um, the, the blocking was kind of a mess. Um, but it's like, you know, each week the, the blocking got cleaned up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, and they were like sort of really hitting their stride, you know, towards the, you know, the end of the year. And, and I know like, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, I don't want to really relitigate the, the conference championship game, uh, but I will, you know, simply to say my piece on the question, uh, Oregon's rushing performance in the conference championship game, in my opinion, had very, very little to do with the offensive line and a whole lot to do with Oregon's coaching decisions regarding which running back they were playing and, you know, their play selection, uh, the, the, the line blocking versus Washington. Washington's defensive front did not really play a role uh, on that question. Like it, the the trend that I am observing about run blocking improving over the course of the year, and like each week it would get a little better. Um, it continued through December first. Uh, so anyway, all of this is to say. Uh, the, the the weird thing about the first Washington game on October 14th was that I think the biggest reason that Bo Nix was sort of, you know, being held back was that Oregon's coaches didn't seem to believe their own data about how effective Oregon's pass blocking was, nor did they seem to believe their eyes about how ineffective Washington's pass rush was, which seemed to me to be very clear through their first five games that like without Jeremiah Martin, that like Trice and Tupeloa Fatui were simply not generating sacks. Um, and I mean, it's still the case. Like, go look up their numbers. Like, those guys don't generate sacks this year. Um, it's not to say that they're god awful. It's just like teams are getting the pass off before they get home. And uh, and so, like, they kept doing this weird thing where they'd roll Knicks out if they ever wanted to take a shot, which like really hampered his effectiveness. Um, and I think that was a big part of it. All right, I I've been talking for a long time. Did you guys see the same thing? I mean, I, I said this in our preview that that we were going to be a lot better at pass protection, specifically on the edge, because uh, for as as uh, big and strong and consistent of players as Sala and Bass were, neither one of them could laterally redirect or, or mirror as well as either of Court Connerly or Cordelius. And so uh, that was that was not surprising to me, and I also expected because of the of the reasons that like a guy like Cornelius is very likely coming back to school and Connerly is not draft eligible that both guys need to get stronger. And so like the displacement in the run game on, on the edges was not as good as it was 
in the past when we had big guys like Bass and Sala. So there was, there was always going to be a trade-off there because the skill sets were different. And then also the physical development was in a different place than it was with the guys the year prior. But um, the performance of the offensive line this year was not even remotely surprising to me. I think it fell completely in line with my expectations for the group. Yeah, it's totally, just weird. totally agree. I, mean, I, think, I think I was, like I said, I was pretty high on them. I think there were times when in, in some of the preseason stuff, we, uh, QB and I both said, and others as well, that by the end of the season, that this line could be better than the 2022 line. I, I'm curious to hear where it ends up charting, but I think it was at least as good in, and I think has higher upside in certain spots. I think outside of, you know, maybe a weak spot here that uh, held them back. But, um, and I think that proved out to be mostly true or at least in, in generality in line with that expectation. I think the other thing, uh, that I will agree with you on, and then I think this dovetails with some rewatching that we did of that Pac-12 title game is I, at first when I, I was, I was at the game and I didn't have the best view from my seat and I thought our offensive line played poorly. And then when I went back and I watched the game on TV, what I actually realized was the problem was with the running back, with the running backs, particularly the yeah. one that was hurt, that shouldn't have been playing. And that's not his fault. That's the coaching fault. Yeah. And it's also like, I, you know, it was an issue that I've, I've been noting about Bucky Irving for, uh, you know, a couple of years is that like, he will sometimes allow his, uh, his proclivity for like improvising to get the better of him. Like, you know, like the blocking is there, Buck, J you know, just run behind your blockers, you know? And, and I, you know, in my post game write up of that game, like I, I put a couple of clips in my article where it's like, you're cutting into the defender you know like just follow your block man um yeah and, the, and the, like, the, the most glaring one on that like second and nine on the most important drive of the yeah. game when there's like a a seven foot wide hole that he could have walked through and he cuts yeah. back into three purple jerseys and it's like it feels weird to criticize the dude who's like the most dynamic and effective running back in the league but like i mean it was something i mean it's not like that came out of nowhere i mean I, qb i remember you and i talking about this last year with bucky irving's like there you know there is this one thing about bucky you know uh <laughs> it's the thing that makes and, him special too right like when especially when he's yeah, healthy it's true you're absolutely right it, he, he and I'm sorry, I don't mean to, to bulldoze you off your track here, but like the thing with Bucky, and, and this was true all season, was like Bucky has a propensity to to freelance and freestyle and not run on the on the design track of the play. And when he is at a hundred percent and his his twitchy burst uh filled self and he can he can break tackles and runs hard and the first guy never brings him down, that's not a problem. But the version of Bucky that existed in that Washington game and frankly, in the Oregon State game as well, was a, a version of him that was banged up and hurt and didn't have the explosiveness of the twitch to make anyone miss or to break tackles. And he was maintaining the same running style, that same undisciplined off-track style, and it was hurting us. And so yeah, to me, that's a situation where I, I don't blame the kid for not changing. I blame the coach for not recognizing his inability to do his style and playing the back that was more effective because every time Jordan James touched the ball in that game, it was positive yardage. 
Yeah, I also, you know, again, I don't want to relitigate that game. I, I have on a couple different podcasts run yeah, down same. my, and I wrote an entire article about it. Um, you, you know what what I thought about this game, but just you know to to briefly put out my opinion on the game in case anybody on this podcast hasn't heard it. Uh, it's you know that that I, I thought the coaches were vis a vis Washington's uh, defensive strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I, I thought they came up with a poor game plan offensively um, uh, in terms of uh, their, their run pass balance, um, like the instantaneous pass rate through about midway through the third quarter was, uh, you know, into the mid seventies favoring the pass, which is, and on top of that was using horizontal stretch plays, which is like the one thing that their defense is sort of built is sort of like Cal's defense. Like they love it when you, when you do that sort of thing and you don't need to, they're a team that you can totally throw over the top against. And the way that you supercharge that is to establish the run. And it's like, they chose exactly the wrong. Like if I were trying to design a strategy to play into Washington's defensive strengths and play away from Washington's defensive weaknesses, it would have been the one that Oregon selected. And I, you know, I just really did not like Oregon's game plan. And if you want more about that, look, man, I recorded two podcasts about it. Uh, and I wrote an article, uh, the, the, I just wanted to sort of throw that out. It's not just in my opinion about the Irving versus James thing. I just thought that that was like I didn't understand that game plan and it sort of also goes back to the October 14th game against Washington where I it's not so much the game plan that you know I thought their game plan you know was basically fine um and I'm not one of those who was upset with the fourth down stuff either I thought that strategically the fourth down decision making made sense it just didn't work out um the what I didn't like was and I know I just said this but I, I wanted to recapitulate on it is that the like i thought it was strange that uh every time oregon wanted to throw it deep they rolled nicks out of the pocket and i i thought that that was totally unnecessary i thought it was unnecessary given nicks's abilities i thought it was unnecessary given oregon's offensive line protection ability i thought it was unnecessary given washington's pass rush i thought it was unnecessary given uh the athleticism in washington's um uh, secondary uh I, I thought for all of those reasons they should have just done what they did against the other 12 football teams that they played against, which was have him throw deep from the pocket. He's perfectly capable of doing it, you know, and it was very, it was like Oregon lost two games this year in, in both of them. It was because they played, it was like they got in their own heads about Washington and played a different game plan in the, in the championship game more radically so than in the regular season game. But still it was like, you don't need to do that. Like you didn't need to do that. It was something that, yeah, that like Dillingham did more with Nick. It was not that Dillingham did with Nick's too. It, it, with our, that, that was one of the things that I'm going to be interested to, to track going into the new year with, with Will Stein is in, in a different quarterback is how much of that, like, half roll shot play stuff was stuff that was comfortable that was held over from the from dilly uh that, that bo liked or how much of that was stuff that we thought was best for bo because i i get this weird feeling that that was something that bo was particularly comfortable with and liked and so we ran it 
Um, and I, I hated it because it cuts the field in half. And, and there's a lot of reasons to dislike it, to be completely honest with you. But um, and I agree with you. I don't think it was necessary at all. And I think that we we did a lot of stuff like that this year. But we had also done all that same stuff the year prior with with Kenny calling plays. So um, I'll be interested to see if that changes at all with with a different quarterback and Will Stein in the year two. But Doug, you asked, you were curious about how the uh, the you know the offensive line graded out. I uh, oh, l- l- before I go any further, let me say I, I I every year I write for the site a complete statistical breakdown, in which I basically take my entire charting system and I turn it upside down and I just dump out like everything. Um, I'm this year I'm because it's I I I I I've been so in the throes of charting uh, Liberty, which I was completely unprepared to do. I I did not have any of the pre-charting done for that team at all i was not expecting that outcome uh uh i i have i usually do it after oregon's final game and before the bowl game this year i'm saving it for after the bowl game so like if anybody's listening to this and saying i can't write down all these numbers while i'm listening to a podcast don't worry the article is coming it's just going to happen in january so but doug you asked uh you know how did the offensive line grade out uh in the aggregate um their pass blocking error rates were about 5.2%. That's an excellent number that is hitting the Oregon standard by by the way that I I, I tally things, which, you know, look, I've said this before on this podcast. It's not like I'm a professional at this or anything, but I have been using the same system for over a decade. And, and, uh, you know, I don't change it or anything. Uh, You know, I don't grade the ducks any differently from anybody else. Um, uh, And in my experience, the way that I do things, 5.2% in pass blocking error rate, you know, over the course of a season is excellent. Can't, can't, phenomenal. Like you, you can win a national championship with that. Uh, In run blocking, uh, it they uh, uh, no real deviations from any of these guys uh, in the aggregate. It's about twelve point four percent. The the worst is Stephen Jones, but even he's at at fourteen point five, which is not that much of a deviation. Um, uh, Powers Johnson's the best. I don't think there's anybody should be surprised by that. Um, the uh, uh, but twelve point four is a, still a little uh, worse than what the sort of Oregon what I what I call the Oregon standard for for you know winning Rose Bowls and stuff. So like the twenty nineteen team um, was at a, like nine point eight percent. The 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 twenty twenty one team, which I think was good enough to win a Rose Bowl if they hadn't like derped it. Um, you know when when Cristobal hit the hit the bricks and 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 uh, and, and Moorhead too um, was it a, a ten point one? Um, so like this team was uh, uh, what was the twenty twenty two team at? Uh, oh, uh, give me one second. I can pull that up. I'll vamp for a little bit. Um, so like uh, you know about a point worse. Uh, that mainly reflects you know the beginning of the year. Uh, they. Uh, you know, so they improved by the end of the year to, to, you know, so over the last six games, their rate was, uh, you know, was down under the Oregon standard, but like the first six games of the year, it wasn't, uh, the 2022, uh, rush rate, uh, um, oh boy. Ooh, 8.65%. Um, boy, they were really kicking butt 
in 2022. Uh, I should have highlighted that. Um, that's phenomenal. Uh, oh, look. East. Yeah. <laughs> I love that wow. we're like getting this discovery in real time, this light bulb moment for you. Well, it's really that there are several dudes who are like in single digits who are phenomenal. So Forsyth had a phenomenal year bat in 2022 Forsyth bass and walk, um, uh, and powers Johnson, of course, just had uh, totally kick-ass years. On the other hand, uh, Harper, uh, Almavai, Luulu and Jones were in the teens, um, like mid teens. So it's like, you, you know, you, you had three guys who were like pac 12 level. And when pack, you may hear in my voice that I'm being somewhat dismissive of that. Um, and you had three guys who were like all world dudes this year in 2023. However, it's different. It's all of the dudes are like 12 and 12 is like above average, but it's like a point or two off of, of 10, which is like tens, what you want to hit like tens, the you're going to win a Rose bowl number. So that's interesting. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that for, for it to be that uniform. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think like, obviously Jones is gone now. Uh, so it was Powers Johnson, and like you said, was the best of the. But bunch. Jones got a little better this year compared to last year. I mean, not that much better, and he was still the worst on the team, which I don't think that should surprise anybody. But like, but he did yeah. get a little better. And I think if you look at the two tackles, I think Coach was... Terry did a great job. For anybody who's worried about such a young man, um, you know, taking over, uh, uh, no, he did a great job. Well, he's got great help too, because Kavanaugh's a great coach as well. Um, yeah. and Cutter, I think Cutter did a good job, although he's now moving on. But, um, uh, you know, and hey, they're one of the what three to five finalists for the Joe Moore Award. And, and that I think mm -hmm. that announcement's coming up here in the next few days or so. So they they could they could win it. Uh, yes, but anyway, the uh, you know, the graph over time, it's it's very consistent, like it's very like every week they get better. And obviously their opponents didn't get incrementally worse you know week over week right you know it it's the it's it's the gelling it's the education it's the teamwork it's you know learning the playbook it's correcting errors it's coaching you know like i think this is a good coaching staff i think this is a good group of folks and like you man, also have two I, you know we have two tackles and Oregon that runs started. like an elegant run scheme. That's the other thing is that like a lot of the run blocking schemes that I watch throughout the Pac-12, it's like, you know, even for the teams that are like they recruited decently or they got some big guys, like all they did was they got big guys who kind of lean on you. And it's like they're you're never going to break chunk yardage runs that way. You know, like Oregon breaks chunk yardage runs because of these guys. And because of their coaching staff and because they actually run an elegant run scheme and because they're trying to. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't disagree, Doug. Yeah, no, they were like third in the country in average. And I think they were, I don't have the latest number, so I don't want to quote it, but I know that as far as like 10 plus more chunk yard, you know, 20 plus yard gains, they were always in the top of the country in those categories as well. So in the running game, particularly, and you know, the other thing I was trying to say is both these tackles also were, were first time starters at this level of football and to see that progression throughout the year particularly in the in the run fit i think will you know will continue into next year right as they're going to be second year starters now uh coming back for the ducks in this uh, presuming that a johnny comes back um you know so that you would you would hope to see a continued trajectory that even improves that those two players at the very minimum at the very least and obviously someone like poncho was a true freshman too you'd expect to see his his trajectory continue to improve I, I should clarify, um, all, all the numbers that I've been giving about the, you know, the aggregate grades have been for the six players. So, uh, I, you know, Connerly, Harper, Powers, Johnson, Stephen, Joseph, Johnny Cornelius, and I have been including in the aggregate number, Iapani Laolu. Um, uh, I'll be, you know, and when I give away, uh, you know, the, the aggregate grades, Laolu, you know, is he's not playing. I'm waiting it for the number of snaps that he plays. So, you know, his, you know, that he doesn't have as many numbers because he's basically rotating with Jones. Although, interestingly, he started towards the end of the year rotating with Harper, with Harper yeah. at the left guard position. Um, or actually, it was sort of a three-way rotation for a couple of games there. And then it started being with Harper. Um, and then, obviously, he played a few snaps at center as well. So, like, yeah, I'm really looking forward to his career. You know, that's going to be quite interesting. Um uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, outcomes, uh, Oregon uh, continued on a per-play basis uh, uh, to be extremely successful. Um, so their per-play success rate um, was on my tally sheet, again, excluding garbage time, of course, uh, was 68.6%. So success rate um, means for those not initiated into the advanced stats, uh, it has to do with down and distance, right? So like, uh, y- you know, um uh, 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 gaining two yards on first down not a success gaining two yards on third and one is a success right um so uh, 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 um, uh, 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 so their success rate uh, in in my experience success rate basically exists within a, about a the, the the bell curve is within a 20 percentage point window where 50 percent is average 60 percent is championship caliber 40 percent is you need to find something else to do um uh, uh, so with 60% being, that's the number you need to hit for your efficiency to be, you know, uh, like a playoff caliber type of team, Oregon's efficiency rate was 68%. Like that's, 
excellent. Like Oregon has been consistently performing well above like, you know, eight to 10 to even 12 or 13 points better than championship caliber and their rush efficiency for, you know, basically ever since, well, since 2019, with the exception of the COVID season, because the COVID season is weird. And also they were totally breaking a new line, but like, it's been five years, basically across three different coaching staffs or, or offensive, co- uh, offensive line coaches, um, uh, you know, where they've been maintaining just phenomenal rush efficiency numbers, um, uh, 6.2 yards per carry adjusted and, and adjusted for me means that I cap all, all gains at 40 yards. That's to control for field position effects. Um, and their, uh, a chunk yardage, uh, rush rate or explosive rush rate is 20.3%, meaning on, on 20% or more of uh, designed carries. So that's excluding quarterback scrambles. Uh, they gain 10 plus yards which is if you're gaining 10 plus yards that means you know every time you hand the running back the ball or, or you know uh, two out of ten times you hand the running back the ball he's going to get you a first down like automatic like that's very good you know that's again championship caliber these are this is a win you a national championship caliber run game uh yeah it was great it was great there's, there's nothing to criticize in this front Let, game. Let's move on to the the pass catchers. Let's and maybe we'll start with the tight end room because I think that's one that's always interesting and, and hard uh, maybe for fans to dissect because you do have two components of it, right? Like what are they doing in the running in the in the running game as a blocker, and then what are they doing in the pass game? And and obviously Oregon didn't use their tight ends a ton in the pass game again this year. I think it, it's been kind of a theme over the last few years. They're a little bit more usage, I think, this year, particularly, obviously, Ferguson with with a shout out to Patrick Herbert as well, who had some he had some important catches throughout the year. But kind of where where do those uh, where do where do the tight end room land and and your charting? Well, let me let me first start off by apologizing to Patrick Herbert because I, I underestimated him massively coming into the year. I thought that the loss of Maliki Montevideo was going to be a bigger deal than it was and I thought it would ultimately result in Oregon playing more 11 personnel and really that wasn't the case Oregon played a bunch of 12 this year and I thought was very effective in that because of him um what do you think about that Hith? uh that is totally true um I I I was well I was agnostic about Herbert I was like the only reason we haven't seen him was because he's hurt um, he was a four star, so either we're going to continue to not see him, uh, or we are going to see him if we do, he could be good or he could be bad. I don't know. Uh, and it turned out we got the happiest news, you know, he, he, he wasn't hurt and he played great. Um, the, in terms of usage, uh, I was surprised by that because I did a whole film study project on Will Stein at UTSA where he was, you know, pre-exclusively an 11 personnel guy. And so I was expecting him to continue to be an 11 personnel guy. And then the way that Matt Avow left, I sort of figured was like Will Stein walking into the room and saying like, I only need one of you guys. Uh, and, and so I, you know, I was... You know, so that surprised me too. Although as the season went on, uh, I I sort of it, it, the light bulb came on for me that like he's really a counter puncher. He didn't he didn't really need to be when he was playing when you know his teams were at UTSA uh, in terms of like the against the defenses that he was playing because the defenses that he was playing didn't really have pronounced strengths and weaknesses. They 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 were 
that caliber of team. Um, but what he did have was uh, his offense sort of changed dramatically uh, because of certain offensive line injuries that 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 um, happened and then that, that that then they recovered from over the course of 2022. So it was interesting to watch his offense adapt. But what didn't change was was how much tight end usage you know happened. But then in 2023 at Oregon. Like it was frequently the case that he could use his tight ends to manipulate um, the opposing defenses like substitution rules. So like either it would be a team that, you know, hey, if you put in 12 personnel, we will always, regardless of the down and distance or the field position, like we'll always put in another linebacker. And so like, hey, the fact that our tight ends can catch passes means that you now are operating at a speed disadvantage. Or, you know, uh, it, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, like playing a team like Wazoo that only ever plays in nickel, you know, you can put a tight end in and now worth, you know, three tight ends in, you know, like playing 13 personnel and now just run the ball down the throat in the red zone. You know, that was definitely what Oregon did when they got into the red zone against Wazoo. They went to 13 personnel and just smashed the poor Cougs because they couldn't get out of nickel because um, like they can. And, uh, and so like, yeah, tight ends were like the, the usage of tight ends were intimately tied to Will Stein's, uh, like the, you know, counter punching nature uh, of like, understand what defense is sort of substitution and, uh, you know, defensive structure and covered structure rules are, and then manipulate them with different personnel packages. And it was interesting because he was doing it with basically three you know tight ends right like unlike last year's room where there was four the, you know this year he really only had three you know ferguson herbert and kelly and then you know kelly wasn't even really using his receiver um ba basically like the catch numbers per dude are basically identical to what they were you know last year like ferguson last year outside of garbage time got 37 catches he gets 39 this year you know last year you know matavow and mccormick each get about a dozen this year herbert gets gets a dozen you know l last year or you know herbert got four this year Kelly gets five. So, you know, he loses a, a tight end compared to Dillingham, but basically the proportions stay, you know, basically identical. It's just, he loses a dude, but like there's, you know, you know, much greater and sort of savvier usage of tight ends, you know, in order to manipulate defenses. Now, the other part of your question, Doug, was like how the 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 blocking was. Uh, Herbert and Kelly were monsters in blocking. They were actually much more effective. Um, well, Herbert was much more effective in blocking in 2023 than he was in 2022. Um and uh, it, uh, uh, they they basically equaled Matavau's performance um, in 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 2022. You know, they basically made up for his loss. Uh, uh, everybody's more effective than McCormick was. Um, the kind of weird thing was that they didn't get any real improvement out of Ferguson. Ferguson has sort of been. Uh, not a great blocker over his career at Oregon. He's been maintaining about a 62% uh, block success rate when he's had the key block over the last uh, couple of seasons. Um, and it hasn't improved. Uh, like unlike Herbert, who's jumped up by about 15 points as I grade it, which is about what I expect when the guy, you know, moves up uh, uh, in, in terms of usage. Uh, 
uh, Ferguson's been sort of stuck in neutral, like, and there's been a bunch of clips in my articles over the the weeks where, like, dude, Ferguson just not blocking correctly on this play was like the reason why this play failed. Should have um, been the perimeter. Like, He's been horrible. Yeah, and, and also like Lee, uh, like on Oregon split zone plays, like the biggest single cause of failure on Oregon split zone runs has been Ferguson running into the wrong gap, and it's like, dude, I know you know what gap you're supposed to run into and that's just the wrong one like so i don't yeah i don't get that man like it's it's actually like the number one in terms of blocking because like we talked last year about how the oregon's like perimeter blocking from the wide receivers has been problematic that's definitely cleared up a lot this year like like i mean it's not phenomenal or anything but like you know franklin was was a pretty damn good perimeter blocker um (laughs) johnson and bryant were actually way better than you would have any right to expect them to be given their size and then holden is surprisingly or not surprisingly (laughs) that guy is big and he likes blocking um uh uh but like um uh, uh, yeah, man, like, uh, like Ferguson, you know, block performance, uh, could really stand to improve. Um, it was like the number one dude with a blocking problem that Oregon has. It's kind of strange. Yeah, it is strange. I expected him to take a step forward in that aspect this year. Um, and he really didn't, but he was a huge playmaker in the past game. And I think, oh yeah, I just, I just hope that with additional depth in the room and another year, like if he is to come back that he takes that step as a walker because otherwise it's really tough to to justify playing him the number of snaps that he played with other guys coming into the room and getting more experience. Well, I think this is yeah, for I his mean, own NFL future. He needs to do that too. Yeah, I mean, the, like, I guarantee you that it took, it, like, he's not a good enough athlete. Like, he's a good he's a good pass catcher, but, like, from an NFL standpoint, he's not a good, a good enough athlete to be a subpar blocker and get drafted. And so he's going to have to, he's going to have to really put some good film together this year um, in order to improve that. And I think he's got, he's got the physical ability to like, he flashes, he flashes the ability to block. Uh, it's just inconsistent specifically on the perimeter. Like the amount of like Ole lookout blocks that he gave to, to perimeter mm-hmm. screen players was just unacceptable. I think other than that though, I was really excited, excited with his play and, and Herbert I thought was, was very, very good. I'm looking forward to seeing an expanded role for Kenyon Sadiq because frankly, like Casey Kelly just doesn't really do it for me, but. Well, yeah. I mean, he was always, I mean, you were expecting that though, right? He's yeah, a no, he's, he's, he's a, he's a spot filler, right? Like he's a gap guy. Um, but yeah, like I, I you know, I, I, t- I talked about that for a while because it's like it was difficult to find anything bad about Oregon's offense, you know, and so the instant I did, it's like, oh, well, this is going to occupy 80 percent of my time. Uh, uh, you know, the one spot of tarnish that you can find on on this silver. Um, but like, y- y- yeah, I mean, it is. Oh, wait, there is one other thing, which is that the running backs don't do great in pass protection. It's just that that's it's so rare that they have to, you know, because the, the offensive line is doing a great job. But like, yeah, no, Irving and James, you know, if if the blitz ever gets through uh, and those guys need to like really stand up a dude like um, you need to figure something else out. You need a better, <laughs> you need a different plan. Uh um, in particular, Irving does not communicate or does not like take communication well uh, in terms of blitz pickup. Like, I don't really get that. Um, but well, I don't know. It's rarely a- an issue, um, but it is an issue. 
Yeah, the, right. the running back. Go ahead, we, I, yeah. Have we talked about the running back room? Yeah, I think it's a good time to transition to that. I mean, we really we kind of started to when we kind of mixed it in with the offensive line a little bit, but we can we can go back. I just have, to I just have a couple up. things. I'll, I just want to yeah. throw one thing in. Like I, Jordan James, we we predicted this coming into the season. But Jordan James was awesome. Like I I think that by year's end he was Oregon's best running back, partially because of health, but I think also because of ability. Like I think he was running. Like he runs on the track, he runs on system really well, but he's also a good improv- improvisational runner in space, um, and his burst looks good. I, I don't know. I just I was very impressed with Jordan James throughout the season, um, and I, I think he deserves to be called out because I think he'll be our number one back next year. Uh, yeah, he was excellent. His uh, his individual per play success rate, or I should characterize it this way: the plays on which he he either caught or carried the ball had a 75 75.3% success rate the plays in which Irving caught or carried the ball only had a 63% or 60 yeah 62.8% success rate so yes uh you know at least on an outcome basis uh yeah James had more uh successful plays you know, on a per play basis than Irving did Significantly so. Yeah, I mean, some of that, some of that sample size points. and randomness, right? And it, if you were to get, if they were to reverse the, the I mean, it's eighty-five versus one hundred and ninety-one. I've got yeah. more than enough plays. To, yeah, but it's to still two to one. Conclusion. My point is, like, not all those failures are because of who was in that spot. It was because of the guys in the other ten spots in some cases or most cases. I, your point's taken. I just uh, think, like, if you were to reverse the 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 number of plays each guy. I mean, they're like, not the really. They're not really different. Like the percentage. They're not asked now. to run. Like the, I mean, sometimes it's the case with running backs that they're asked because they're like they're built in different ways, or they're asked to run like different aspects of the offense. That that's a valid, you know. That that's a you know like your touchdown vulture, you know, like like short yardage back versus your scat back or something like that. But like that doesn't really apply here. Like Irving and James were asked to run the same plays, and I have a you know, an enormous sample size for James, um, like 85 touches is, you know, in non-garbage time over like 12 FBS games in a power five level, like with the 13 percentage point, you know, gap, like, nah, man, like I'm not saying the gap would equalize. I'm saying that 78% would come down. Like if he had 190 touches, it wouldn't be 78%. It would be 72% or something. I, I, I think it's largely just explained by Irving's injury. I think it's an injury and I think it's his running style. I like, again, yeah. like you're going to be a more efficient player when you play to the offense um, at a higher level. So to me, that's like fundamental. I think the point we're all agreeing with is that Jordan James is really freaking good and quite honestly underutilized, in my opinion. Agreed. I mean, it's definitely true. The other thing is that success rate is different from like explosiveness or yards per carry, you know, numbers like, you know, success rate just means you got enough yardage given the down and distance, you know, to, to stay ahead of the sticks. Right. Like there are a lot of plays where I'm very happy that it was Irving carrying the ball because like he made something out of nothing, um, which is, you know, in many ways an invaluable skill. But if you've got an offensive line that's blocking lights out, like, uh, you know, that's when I want a running back who follows his blocks. Yeah, and I think that there's times that Jordan or that that Bucky Irving made something into nothing and then made it something again too, right? Like that's just that's yeah. just the nature <laughs> of his run style where like he he's just, he's just, he's a creative... He, you take the bad with the good. Yeah, like in the other guys, like uh, Mark Wahlberg's character says, like, I'm a peacock, you got to let me fly, and you, you just got to let 
you got to let Bucky Irving Peacock to be his best self. So unfortunately he was hurt, but we're beating a dead horse there. Um, I think we need to finish up with the receiver room. Yeah. What do you got, Heath? Uh, well, you know, I don't think I have really anything to add other than what, you know, beyond what a, you know, casual observer would have seen, you know, they, they basically played exactly four guys, um, which I, I must admit, I am accustomed to, uh, unaccustomed to seeing, I'm used to seeing quite a bit of rotation in a wide receiver room so, and, 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 uh, sort of a long tail and being able to make comparisons. Um, they, you know, when Will Stein said he wants to feed the studs, like I hear a lot of coaches say that and then you still have the long tail like they're i mean that was it man the ball was going to franklin tez johnson you know and then there's a fall off pretty significant fall off to gary bryant and and Treshawn holden um and then no one you know other than garbage time um now a lot of that's the tight ends uh and the running backs you know but that those are you know strategic choices about the structure of the offense um you know i i don't think it's really commentary on the wide receiver room um i think it's you know those are strategic choices um it within you know the but what it does mean is that, like, I really don't have any ability to discuss, like, you know, how did Franklin compare to Holden? Well, you know, that really is one where, I mean, like, Franklin has five times as many, you know, targets as Holden has. Like, I can't make that comparison, you know? Franklin is sui generis in this system, like... You know, even Tez Johnson and Gary Bryant, whose skill sets I think are probably very similar and whose per play success rates are identical. I mean, I'm not joking about that. They're both 71 point, you know, something percent like I, I mean, like they might as well be the same player. It's just that. You know, Tez Johnson gets 83 non-garbage time targets and Gary Bryant gets 21, you know, four times, you know, four times as many for Tez Johnson. I know it's like I, I don't have the sample size in order to make a comparison in their performance. So, you know, effectively, the, the ball's going to one outside receiver and one inside receiver and... And that's that. Like, I can't make comparisons. Uh, now, their performance was phenomenal. They set records. Like, you know, they're excellent after the catch. They got, you know, great hands, except for when they dropped the ball, which is a Penn State thing to say. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, they made a lot of defenses look silly. Um, they, they obviously, you know, were on quite a wavelength with Bo Nix, which is, an, you know, important thing, chemistry. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, Franklin is Oregon's leading receiver and, and just subjectively from watching all of his film, the best receiver that Oregon's ever had. And, and, and Tez Johnson's no slouch either. Yeah. I think, I think what happened there is you had two guys that were really the best two in the room. And then beyond that, it was about experience and consistency because, oh, Bo, Bo was going to be primarily targeting those two guys and everybody else on the field just needed to be trusted to be in the right place with a veteran quarterback. And I think that's why you didn't see a lot of the younger receivers so it'll be interesting to see how that that room kind of develops in the spring but i don't have a ton of like big picture thoughts on it just given the fact that it's going to be three-fourths the same um but you're replacing the one-fourth that's the best player in oregon history at the position so it's going to be very intriguing to watch that room uh develop through the spring and see we see what what it looks like when fall rolls around 
I mean, I, I'm an empiricist. Like all I can tell you is what the, you know, or all I'm willing to tell you is what the film showed me. And the film didn't show me anybody in Franklin's position except for Troy Franklin. And so, you know, QB, you just said, you know, he was clearly Oregon's best receiver in the room. I, I'm not willing to say that because I didn't see anybody else. I mean, for all I know, Oregon had a better receiver sitting in the room that, you know, Will Stein just hated that guy. You know, he always ate his lunch in the lunchroom. And so he just hated him and he never let him play. For all I know, you know that's true. Uh, beats me. You know, I, I literally have no data on anybody else playing Troy Franklin's position. So, like, yeah. who knows? I mean, it's hard to justify taking a guy off the field when he's playing that good a ball. So I, I get it yeah sure and, uh, it's going to be one of the more intriguing things to watch because so far oregon has not been very aggressive about targeting transfer portal wide receivers so it's it certainly seems like they feel like they have somebody in their hip pocket but you know that's that's conjecture yeah and we'll see what jury on dickie looks like I've, I've heard great things about him but he was a late enrollee who was hurt and by the time he was <laughs> like fully physically ready he was so far behind within the system and like we run specifically at the X position, there was a lot of option routes with Bo and Troy. And I, I don't think it's fair to expect a true freshman to be able to come in and execute that like a duo as prolific as those guys were. So um, I can say uh, uh, this, uh, this is going to veer into the realm of speculation, but I, I feel like I'm on a bit more solid footing because I have film the Tez Johnson versus Gary Bryant thing is interesting to me because, like I said, on a per play basis, their numbers come out equal, like almost perfectly equal. Now, I have four times as many targets for Tez Johnson as Gary Bryant, but I still have enough targets for Gary Bryant in order to say that confidently. Um, and on top of that, I have his entire 2021 film that I reviewed when he was playing at USC. I know nobody else watched that film because it was the laugher year for them, but I watched it and he's a really good receiver. Um, like really good. Uh, and I thought it was kind of crazy that he wasn't used, you know, at least in a more equal way, um, as, as Tez Johnson was, um, that I, I, I didn't see anything on film QB. I'm, I'm curious if you disagree with, with what I'm about to say. Uh, I didn't see anything on a film from the, from Gary Bryant that made me, I mean, I know he got injured against Oregon state. Um, but you know, that, that accepted, of course, uh, I didn't see anything on film from Gary Bryant that made me think, oh boy, that guy stinks compared to, you know, Tez Johnson. There's a reason why Tez Johnson's getting four times as many carries instead of it being 50-50. Um, I sort of suspect, I know this is sort of a popular fan theory and God, the commentators wouldn't shut up about it, but that that's the family connection with Bo Nix. And I am curious to see if, you know, with a new quarterback, uh, that that maybe evens out more. Um, QB, you got an opinion about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I couldn't disagree more. I think there's a massive difference between Tez and, and Gary Bryant Jr. I, uh, Tez mm -hmm. is way quicker in and out of his breaks. He's a way better route runner. Um, he's a lot more elusive and dynamic in space, both because of his explosive athleticism, but because of his wiggle. Um, I, I like Gary Bryant was one of the more underwhelming guys in the room. For me, honestly, I, I've, I thought that the fact that he was getting preferential treatment over Holden was a bit strange, but 
that Holden does still have a couple drop issues that he's. I mean, Bryant and Holden have pretty different bodies. I, yeah, but like, I mean, I wouldn't expect them to be directly in competition with one another. No, but like that's really what it was, and and to me, like the drop off from Tez to Gary Bryant's pretty substantial. Like Bryant, Bryant mm-hmm. gets pushed off his spot, and he's not he's not as quick. Like he's just he's a, he's a solid player. I'm, I'm not trying to hate on Gary Bryant. I know it sounds like it, but like Tez Tez is definitely, in my opinion, like a significant upgrade over Bryant. Um, and and definitely justifies the preferential treatment in terms of snaps. I don't think that's all to do with the brother effect or um, the relationship he had with Bo, but I, I just think that he was a, a more dynamic player and 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 he's a more explosive element in the offense. I you know I I can't say that I I was seeing that like I for me I I thought I was seeing you know a, a lot of good performance out of Gary Bryan I really liked his 2021 film but you know what the hell do I know uh I, I will say I I did note like I again I do not want to belabor the brother thing I got you know is sick of that uh the commentators you know not not shutting up about it as anybody um uh I I will note that like to the extent that I had criticism for Bo Nix you know over uh over the course of the season one of the more f- frequent ones that showed up as like negative marks on my tally sheet was I thought he forced the ball to Tez Johnson uh, a, a little more, you know, like if he was a, if he was forcing the ball, if, 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 if he was making a mistake in pass selection, it would be that he was forcing the ball and B that the dude that he would be forcing the ball to would be Tez Johnson. I'd be like, nah, move on, you know, move down the progression, man. Like, uh, and, like again, I don't want to go to the brother thing, but like I sort of felt like there was some chemistry there that he was willing to rely on. And regardless of this disagreement that we're having about Johnson versus Bryant, I am interested to see what Gabriel, or maybe it'll be a different quarterback, but let's be real, it's gonna be Gabriel. Uh if that maybe that that phenomenon, the like force the ball to Johnson phenomenon, maybe that, you know goes away uh in 2024 i'm curious to see that and i'm curious if you have an opinion on that question as well i do um i think that i think there is some truth to the i think johnson got probably more targets than he would have and i think some some amount of that is due to the familiarity and trust factor and those things i don't think it was egregiously more and I think it's hard to argue too much with the. No, result. I don't either. It's a, it's again the like I've got to find something to criticize because yeah. there wasn't much. Yeah. And I think also like it's hard to argue too much with the results because on the whole the results were pretty darn positive when when it, then that happened. But I do agree with you that I think that I would expect his target share maybe to go down next year. Maybe not because you don't have Troy on the other side. So maybe maybe it won't go down overall. It'll just be Troy's will get dispersed out to to more to. You know, whoever, whoever's the new person filling Troy's role, as well as the wide receiver three and four and five, you know, will probably get a bigger target share of what, what this year went to Troy. But I, so I think you're right, but I also think that QB is right that, I mean, Tez Johnson is just, just a significantly better player than Gary, Gary Bryant, in my opinion as well. I mean, I'm not trying to hate on Tez Johnson. I love that guy's film. Like, I, I mean, I wrote a whole article about Tez Johnson, too, in which I was, like, jumping for joy about this dude. In fact, I was like, you know, it's funny that I, you know, if if I sound like I'm saying I think that Tez Johnson was overutilized this year, I don't really think I, I'm not trying to say that, but it's funny because the article that I wrote about him 
last summer was, or, or the summer of 2023 was, uh, you know, Troy University, where he was before he transferred to Oregon, was massively underutilizing him, and they should have been throwing him the ball on every play. <laughs> so it's pretty ironic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can yeah, you no, got anything sure. on that one? No, and I'm losing my voice. I'm not trying to, I know I'm sounding a little bit monotone right now. I wasn't trying to like crap mm. on your analysis on it either. Hitler, like I, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, but like ultimately to me, there's a lot of plays that Tez makes in space specifically like immediately post catch that I don't think any of the other receivers in the room can make. And so, um, I think him specifically in the slot was a mismatch. That was what, one of the oh, things definitely. that really upgraded the offense this year. Well, it was last thing I want to say and move on. Uh, I, I really thought that um, one of the things that I really thought from watching Bryant's 2021 film at USC uh, that I th that sort of figured one of the things that I got from watching Bryant's 21 one film at USC was when they lined him up in the slot and they ran him to the skinny post and uh, Pac-12 defenses had to try to defend him with a safety or God forbid a linebacker was that that was like a guaranteed touchdown. Um, uh, uh, the, like they just couldn't do it or, or that they'd spin over a cornerback to try to, to do that in which case it would free up the sideline route. Um, like the, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that basically if you did nothing else, but just had Gary Bryant, just take off from the slot to the post on every play and, and, and just like, I don't know, 15% of them just bomb it to them that like, oh my God, you would just score like you know, 21 points for free, you know, it was just like, I was salivating over this possibility. And then the fact that this like didn't happen in 2023 was like kind of ticked me off uh like i wanted more of it and it kind of like if i'm sounding like i'm dovetailing with some of the like lunkheads on twitter who would criticize uh you know oregon's like depth of throw uh you know i'm not trying to but like i man i wanted to see more of that stuff like i i i wanted to you know I, I thought that uh, I, I sort of had my fill of horizontal stretch plays and in-breaking routes over the middle, and I wanted to see more Brian out of the skinny post. Like, I thought that was undefendable for a lot of Pac-12 defenses, in particular, you know, a, a certain one to the north of the Columbia. <laughs> yeah, I don't It's funny I don't that you mentioned that What? Uh, go ahead, Kibi. I was just going to say, like, I, I don't disagree, and I think that one of the interesting things for me, like, next year is, does that become more become more of a, uh, an element, a key element of the offense? Uh, just because it didn't seem like the that like Stein and the staff really trusted Bo over the middle for large portions of the season, and then all of a sudden he started ripping a bunch of really nice throws over the middle in the last quarter of the season, last third of the season, um, and then they went away from it again in the Pac-12 title game against a team that had been susceptible to throws over the middle the entire season. I guess every other team that played them. I. You, it, it, like, yeah, I know, man. Like, they were 118th in the country. I published literally every one of them that they are right. Yeah, all we're right. being the dead I, because we I all love, agree. <laughs> this is why I love Texas in that game, though, because Texas is going to absolutely go target that. <laughs> I just don't know why. I, 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 to this day, I don't understand our game plan in the Pac 12 title game. I maybe never will. I just have to let it go. But I, I think it's funny that you mentioned what you said about Gary Bryant and those skinny posts. Hithleday, because I remembered that. I remembered you saying that, and all like the first half of the season, 
I kept thinking like, is this the game where we're going to see that? And then it never happened. And then I just kind of said, well, clearly that's never going to happen. And I stopped looking for it. But I remember very clearly you calling that out from your previous film study. And and whether it's not even to me, it's not even about Gary Bryant. It's just more about the concept of we just like how many yeah. posts did we even throw the entire season? I I thought it I, I thought it was a curious absence in Oregon's game plan. And and yeah, I wonder if there isn't something about you know I I think to me the the strangest thing about Oregon's offense is I think that there was a mismatch between what Oregon staff thought this group of players was capable of and what they were actually capable of. Um, like this is sort of a I mean maybe a crazy thing to say about an offense that in in F plus finished what like what was their finish in F plus like one or, or two? It was, I think it was two. Yeah. Pretty flipping high. Like it could have been much better. Like I, this offense was strangely conservative. It was second. It um, was uh, only behind LSU. I, I, I really felt like this, this team, you know, was, was, was playing with some, uh, with some limiters on, um, uh, and that in many ways I felt like the coaching staff had some doubts about their capabilities. Now, maybe that's because they watch them in practice all day long and I don't, and maybe their understanding of those limitations is, um, is correct. And, and mine is, you know, born from the, the carefully curated game plans that they've designed that have fooled me into thinking that they're more capable than they really are. Uh, I guess that is a possibility. Um, I don't think so though. I think it's the other way around. I, you know, I, I, I thought this offensive line pass protected better than this coaching staff seemed to think. I thought that Nick's threw a better deep ball, uh, than this coaching staff seemed to think. And from the pocket, I, I think that these receivers took off from the line, um, and would simply beat coverage like single coverage, just dusted them better, uh, than this you know, staff seemed to think, uh, and, uh, and, and I thought it was curious that they spent, like, I understood against certain defenses that they needed to outsmart them and that I understood why, and I love writing about it. I mean, nothing as a film reviewer gives me more pleasure than showing, uh, you know, uh, sequences of plays so that I can connect dots for people. See how this play sets up this play, and that on this play, the the defender did this, but on this play, they manipulated him to do that. Like, I, I love writing about that stuff. But what I hate, you know, writing about is against this defense, you didn't need to do it at all. You just needed to cook them. So why didn't you just cook them? And, and yeah, I, and maybe I sound greedy for wanting it to, you know, Hey, they were the number two offense, but I want them to be number one, but like, I think it comes man, down. I really strongly feel like they could have been uh, the number oh, and one. I think for actually for most of the year, they were, they tailed off in the last two games, but I, I, I think they, um, I, I don't think it's greedy. And I think that against 11 teams on their schedule, their efficiency approached was, you know, was undeniably like, why would you do anything else? It was unstoppable. But against the, you know, the one team that you played 
you needed you needed more. You needed more than just we're going to methodically drive down the field and and score like we do on everybody, and then have a, you know, or or along the way we we get some chunk plays that turn into touchdowns because, like, that's what Washington defends pretty well, right? But what they don't defend well is explosive plays. But Oregon, for whatever reason, didn't try for explosive plays enough, in my opinion, particularly in those. Games. Okay, so here's a quite here here's my question. What what was their what was their biggest name? Their two biggest games between the two Washington games, Utah and SC, or Oregon State. One of those two. I'll, I'll say Utah and USC. How would you characterize the opening couple of drives against Utah and USC? Explosive. <laughs> Uh, they attacked. They attacked him in the passing game of... in the in in the not in the horizontal way. It, you know, they attacked him in the in a ver- in middle distance vertical passing game, which is why I was so excited to see that because we hadn't seen it leading up to the Washington game, and then we saw it after the Washington game, and I expected it to continue the second time we played Washington, and it strangely didn't. I didn't get it, man. I, I, I really didn't. Yeah. And We're, I, I don't get it. I've ranted about it on seven different episodes now. I'll never get it. It's so strange because it's like they clearly weren't intimidated by Utah and USC. They clearly did not get in their heads about playing a big game, right? Like they were immune to all that. Just like they were immune to the hype about Colorado, right? Just like they were immune to all the letdown games, right? Like all the psychological stuff that people wanted to, you know, put on to, to land all, all, all that psychological stuff, be it games that they, you know, the, 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 you know, the trap game phenomenon when they went down to the desert, you know, or, or playing his old, you know, his old buddy, you know, Kenny Dillingham, like none of that, none of that stuff applied. They would never get in their heads about that stuff. They were a, a machine and they were confident, right? They were confidently throwing downfield passes with the full, you know, and, and when I say confident, I'm not trying to use the dumb sports writer cliche. I mean, like they believed that these players would execute, you know, that the, the type of game plan, you know, that required the offensive line to block and the quarterback to stand in the pocket and the receivers to, you know, beat the coverage and the quarterback to put it in their hands, right? Like confidence. Uh, and then, and, and then it's just like they, they turtled. Yeah. I, I think we, we have to move yeah. on. I agree with that. I feel, All right, you're right. You're right. You're I feel right. like they you're play. Right. I do. I agree with you though. Cause it felt like at times in both Washington games and particularly in the second one, it felt like there was a tension, the tension, a tightness, scared, whatever you want to call it, playing scared, whatever you want to call it, right? Like that they weren't playing loose and free like they were in the other 11 games. Or like Wazoo last year, right? Where like, that's a game that would have broken Mario Cristobal, right? Like Mario Cristobal loses that game 10 games out of 10, yeah. right? No chance we come huh? back. No chance. Right. Like that was actually one of the most encouraging games that I see, you know, where Dillingham was sort of screwing up in the red zone in the first half. Right. Like that doesn't get Dan Lanning down. Right. There were so many games under this coaching staff in which like they don't let the moment get too big for them. They, you know, they don't get like plowed under by it. But then, you know, in a rivalry game 
I mean, hell, the you know the rivalry game against Oregon State. You know, this game it was just like I was even screwy. Like I know they won that game by a big margin, but it was still screwy. You know, you, you know what I mean? How yeah. about how the Civil War this year was a screwy game? It should have been a bigger like, win, to be honest with you. Yeah. It, it, it's it like felt, I don't know. It felt so, similar. Some of this like psychological stuff. It's like they get in their heads. Yeah. They like they they sometimes make the game too big and they get sort of I don't know. I mean that kind of happened in the USC game to a degree too, right? I mean it was thirty six to twelve. The interception. Nah, you know. nah, I don't. I think I think that's overfitting. That I think be. that was just some sloppiness. Okay. I, I think there was just some sloppiness and garbage time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree on the USC game because, like, when when we were like in the early portion of that game, we were just a well unstoppable machine, uh, and then it was like late when substitutions started happening, and we took our foot off the gas a little bit. And, and well, that, and the results that BS, BS, that BSPI like totally changed the game. I mean, that would have been first and ten at the USC thirty-one yard line, and instead they scored a touchdown. <laughs> 